The news on CJOB. 2021 better be better than 2020. Hi, I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche. And rather than look back at this miserable year, we speak to experts and some in the key sectors about how the events that reshaped our world in 2020 will continue to change in 2021. How will the workplace change? Working from home, what does this mean to your job? The commute, our cities, the challenge of trying to separate work from play. And when will we be able to gather again? What events will look like once enough of us are vaccinated? And how about these changes? Which ones are permanent? We offer some educated assessments of where our lives are headed in the months and years ahead in areas of design, the way we shop, our relationships, education, science, and medicine. Let's begin our journey by hopping into our car. We will see a a bit of change with respect to the demand for the infrastructure associated with, you know, our commuting, for instance, because we might see some businesses that decide, you know, this work at home experiment that we were all thrust into actually turns out to be not that bad. Productivity might not be that off. Uh, You know, we can certainly tweak that and work towards it. But the next few years will be quite interesting to see how everybody adapts. David Duval teaches transportation at the University of Winnipeg. I think there's always going to be a need uh, and certainly demand for public transit, uh, especially in cities like Winnipeg and other, you know, smaller, even larger cities in, in Canada and countries like Canada. So I think that there's room for it. The question is, is whether or not there's enough value and demand for those level of services and what do the networks look like for those services. Duval concludes public transportation and ride sharing services will take a hit, not permanently, but planners will have to accommodate our fears of being in tight places. That is so true for the workplace now and in the months and years ahead. We're seeing a lot of the changes already and they're probably here to stay. Winnipeg management consultant Patrick O'Reilly. Some people work from home some days, other people maybe work from home most days, um, and yet still find a way that people come together and collaborate on projects. Um, You know, I I don't want to discount, that was hard before when everybody was in the office. Um, And and so it's a particular challenge now, but but really acknowledging that COVID has just accelerated um, the technological advancements in the workplace like enormously. I think that's one positive that has come out of this terrible experience. O'Reilly says workplaces of the now and in the future will need to collaborate more. We were already on that path, but the pandemic has proven that we need to work as teams. We need to respond on a daily basis to the mental well-being And it begins with sorting out that work-life balance in the new world that will see more and more of us work at home on a permanent or semi-permanent basis. That was always a challenge, even before COVID, but it was brought into a kind of crystal clear focus in the last few months or last nine months. And now, as we're starting to see maybe a slightly different outlook on 2021, some employers and some employees want to go back to those pre-COVID times, which might have meant you know, long hours at the office, but it also meant a clear separation of work in their home. We're hearing from other people who want work from home to be the new norm. You know, they want a sort of a flexible knowledge-based economy. And I think for us, the big lesson is that neither one of those is going to be optimal on its own. You know, as employers, we're going to have to be much more flexible than we were ever willing to be before. That also means changing how we measure 
people's contributions, how we measure our progress in the business. For a lot of leaders, and you know, I'm of that era too, who grew up entering the workforce in the 80s and 90s. Um, it means now shifting our perspective from you know checking if there's bums in seats and the long hours at the office to now looking at how well are people working as a team, how much engagement is there, and measuring their deliverables regardless of you know how many hours they put in or or when they put in those hours. And it means leaders need to spend more time working on culture, so it's less about outputs and more about creating a workplace that thrives between the office, the home, and somewhere in between using the best of technology to link us and keep us together. Again, Winnipeg management consultant Patrick O'Reilly with us here on 680 CJOB. Prior to COVID, I think a lot of leaders there, they were really deliberate about the deliverables that had to be met and kind of let the culture of the organization grow out of the work that we were doing. I think we have to shift that completely as leaders. We now have to be really deliberate about the culture and how we engage with one another, how we support one another, how we work together when some people are at home and some people are at the office. And then let the deliverables and the success flow from how we work together. That means when I think about these people working at home, um, workplaces and leaders really need to, you know, I mentioned find ways to help teams be teams, use technology and adapting schedules and stuff like that. But it also means helping those individual workers find a way to shut down and walk away at whatever closing time is, right? A way to turn off and tune out. The reality, I think, before COVID is that seemed impossible for many people even before this happened. And and now it's even more so because, you know, their office is their dining room table or, or their guest room or something. So I think it's incumbent on workplaces to help people find that balance even more than it was before. Otherwise, we're going to be seeing just all kinds of burnout and, and damage. And key to surviving the months ahead, our mental health. The pandemic has caused a lot of damage, and the successful businesses of the future will have frank conversations about our collective well-being. What I'm seeing in the work we do with leaders is that even people who've never really struggled with mental health, right? people who maybe, you know, had the blues once in a while, they're now struggling with full-blown depression. And people who have no experience whatsoever with ever struggling with mental health, they're now talking about being, you know, confused and worried because they don't know why they're so tired or foggy or or irritable or emotional or whatever. And and that's showing up in the workplace. We spend a fair bit of time coaching kind of mid-level leaders and senior level leaders, both the private sector, the public sector. When I think about them and, and us, you know, we're arguably the most privileged, successful, protected people in our society, right? We're, we have jobs, we have income security, all of that. We have agency. And yet when we talk to those senior leaders, we're hearing constantly from them about the strains on their mental health and the people around them, right? Where our conversations before COVID might have focused on like that one employee who wasn't making the grade and how to help them. The conversations now about how do we help all our employees just get through the day? And that may improve when, you know, a vaccine takes hold and and everything feels like it's calm again. But I think the lingering effects are still there. With some of those senior executives, our conversations, coaching conversations, of course, used to be all about goals and deliverables and the finances and the success of the business. And in the last nine months, we've spent a fair bit of time talking about their own fragility, like their uncertainty, their fears, their struggles with their own 
um, resilience and well-being. It's way past time that as employers, as workplaces, we're going to have to just acknowledge that if we don't support people in that way and find ways to talk about mental health, there's a crisis coming of epic proportions that's going to affect all of our businesses. No matter what industry you're in, finding a balance, making sure you've still got some office space where people gather. Uh, you know, maybe Thursdays we're all in the office. Maybe every other day it's open for those who want it. People can work every day in the office if they choose to, or they can have a like a hoteling space where they come in and work one day a week. It's the concepts we've talked about all through, you know, the last 15 years. But it's going to be real now. Winnipeg management consultant Patrick O'Reilly, thank you so very much for joining us. Just ahead, what office space and our city spaces will look like as we continue on 680 CJOB. With more and more of us working at home and many workplaces looking to shift workers permanently or at least partially home, what will this mean to office and ultimately city spaces? Design in the months and years ahead will change. Hi again, I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Kluche. 2021 better be better than 2020. And Winnipeg architect and urbanist Johanna Horme says it all begins with fresh air. Outdoor air quality is so much better than what we're still able to get indoors. And so uh, definitely some of those same lessons, operable windows, lots of natural light for indoors. Um, There's flexibility, we can talk about that in more detail. But I think one of the key things for me that um, comes from all of this is that um, we're sort of highlighting how we're still as people, social beings, you know, you would think that um, everybody crawling into their own corner is a thing to do to isolate from others, but yet um, that is the one thing that's coloring all of this discussion in my mind is that how we're still missing those contacts and how we have to design so that we allow for them to occur, whether it's indoors or, or outdoors. So what changes do you anticipate will be made in the design of new buildings, retrofitting existing ones? I get this. It's about opening those spaces up to light, to fresh air, windows that actually open up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been advocating that as architects for years because there is all kinds of research that backs up how that's so much better for your uh, well-being and, and preventative care and and just, you know, well-being from day to day, um, getting access to light and so forth. But I, but I do think that we also, this is highlighting that there is um, a certain level of, it's not about just building abundance of space, because we also do have people who are rediscovering how much they're gaining back by not having to commute for hour, hour and a half a day to, to work and back, and how much they're gaining back in their personal lives and and family lives that way. So I think there's a whole level of flexibility that has to be built in um, into workplaces that maybe um, even though the knee-jerk reaction would be that we we need separate office rooms and and things like that to keep people apart, but I think it's quite the opposite, is that we don't want to build abundance of space because people are looking for that flexibility when when you're at the life stage where you need that to be home maybe with your kids or looking after your older, older parents or so on, you need that flexibility to be able to work from home. But at the same time, collaborative work has not gone anywhere. Creative work is still something that, uh, that definitely needs those, those face-to-face contacts and we have to allow for that. So maybe office spaces like ours that we've been thinking about now becomes actually smaller and tighter yet so that half of the, uh, the studio can be home at times when they, 
want to have that flexibility with uh, with home life and but then there's still space for for us to get together and be creative and build on others' ideas. For existing spaces, expect wide open space. And as Patrick O'Reilly told us about the office of the months and years ahead, we'll have to keep in mind that some employees will be working there full-time, others part-time at home and in the office a few days a week, and others permanently at home connected by technology. Nobody really truly knows yet, but um, I think it is about multiple uses for multiple uh, or, or every space so that they're not so defined to one use. Uh, so that we can have um, situations that change, you, you know, your, your space can contract and expand according to need and, and God forbid if there's another pandemic that we can sort of pull back again. Um, so those are some of the conversations and, and um, like I mentioned that people do have sometimes maybe one, work, uh, one week they want to be at the, at the office space to make sure that they gain from those social contacts that they are still looking to, to, to have. And then another week they can be home and there is no sort of real waste in, in that built in. We can design smart. Um, it's not about the quantity of it, but the quality of it. With architect Johanna Herme on 680 CJOB, how about the future of our cities? Well, I think the city can be uh, in the beginning thought that, oh, no, this is going to give everybody an excuse to say that, oh, we need more um, driving space and for individual cars to because, you know, that's how you isolate. But at the same time, as the, as the pandemic's been going on and on, uh, I've realized the same thing, is that people are just people, and for a thousand years we've been looking to connect with other people, and that's not any different in urban space. And if anything, uh, we've noticed that there's more of a need for people to get out there and be in spaces where other people are, but maybe they need to do it slightly safer, and they need to build wider sidewalks and allow for a um, variety of um, modes of transportation, so pedestrians, bicyclists, scooters, what have you, um, in addition to cars, and so that we have those options and we can be outside as opposed to in the indoor air quality more. Um, so that's what I would, um, I would optimistically then see and, and advocate for, that um, that's really important. Um, it is, we are social beings and, and we need those spaces to, to accommodate um, us at larger scale. Joanna, I do fear for our downtown simply because the trend in a place like Winnipeg has been more those suburban office parks that you live in Lindenwoods, you drive five minutes and you're at your suburban office space where you're not paying for parking. Uh, and I, I, in talking with developers, we're going to see more and more of that in the years to come. And they're saying the pandemic is going to give them even uh, more license to pursue these types of projects. Yeah, no, I, and I share that fear. It's, it's not unfounded um, in a way that there's definitely going to be some trend toward that and their sort of reasoning, um, as you're saying, uh, that people are going to, to place on it based on the, the pandemic. But at the same time, I think that, again, that there's a resurgence of that need to be in cities and in, in closer contacts with other people to, to, to grave for those social connections. And I think we're going to have a surge of that when it's, it's again, possible to dine out and, and, you know, people watch and so forth. So the optimist in me believes that that is also going to occur simultaneously and we're going to have a good balance of that. Um, 
that later on because we are missing that now. And uh, again, while all of that is, is true, what you said, um, I also think there's, an, there's a flip side to the coin. Just when you look at the, the number of new housing units within the downtown core or the, uh, the Winnipeg core in general, uh, that number keeps going up. And there's, a, there's an increasing number of us who do want to be here and want to be part of uh, uh, the center of the of the city. Herme has already seen a trend by builders of multiple housing units to design either without interior corridors or giving people an option, a second option of a walk-up entrance directly from outside. Increased flexibility, um, options for people. Um, it's options even in apartment-style buildings that uh, we are, we're designing. So lower to the ground, uh, options to walk up, uh, maybe even have hallways that are exterior hallways so that you don't, you're not tied to having to take the elevator with others. Um, those are things that are entirely possible and happen elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, the winter is no, is no limit to that. I think it's funny, people often think, no, 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 we can't do that in Winnipeg because we have winters, but it's just a matter of where in the sequence of things you place the front door. Uh, so where is the where is the warm space? So it can be just as uh, the same in an apartment building at your front door uh, than in a in a public front door. So I think those sorts of small things, um, having those options, having uh, choice, having flexibility, those are the big drivers for for the future. Winnipeg architect and urbanist Johanna Herme. Later, a conversation with the president of the University of Manitoba on the permanent changes in education as a result of the pandemic. And we'll talk to a Winnipeg doctor on how Zoom and other face-to-face platforms is changing medicine. And just ahead on 680 CJOB, how the basic measurements you do yourself combined with an algorithm is changing the way you will buy clothes. It better be better than 2020. I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier. Groceries, electronics, easily purchased online. And we'll talk to Michael LeBlanca, the Retail Council of Canada, about the changes we will continue to see in the way we shop. But first, a local entrepreneur who really is changing the way we buy clothing suits to be specific gone are the days of walking in and seeing what size what shape and what patterns are available here every pattern can be made into your specific size and shape and alex ethan's of f apparel has been on the cutting edge of custom-made suits the story born out of frustration with the way suits were traditionally done. Really started from our own personal experience. We were graduating uh, from the University of Manitoba Commerce Program and needed those first three, four suits to kick off our career and quickly realized we couldn't afford custom-made suits and what we were left to were off-the-rack options that really didn't meet the style or fit preferences we were after. And so F was born to to help solve that. How did the pandemic hit you guys? It hit us hard. And I think that our industry retail has been hit hard, but suiting itself, especially, you know, you typically buy a suit for the workforce, uh, an event, perhaps a graduation or a wedding or a special gala. And right now, none of that's unfolding. And so it's certainly been a bit of a stop or a slowdown on our business. We've uh, certainly managed it by working with uh, new products, uh, moving into some more 
casual attire. Um, and also, of course, focusing on the clients that are still going to the office or still getting married and uh, doing those type of events. And getting a suit is all about going in person. The measurements, the fitting, the refitting, the tucking. Can't do that online with success. Well, you can and Ethan's is proving it. I think there's no question we'll have more of a permanent move to online shopping and a bit more of that omni-channel approach. I think it's for us creating a special in-store experience where clients can maybe go finish off their experience online. But for those clients that have shopped with us in the past, providing a great forum online so that they continue to shop with us without coming into storefront if they so choose. So I think that it's uh, providing each client with their own process that they're desiring. Ethan's has tapped into the future of clothing based largely on an algorithm that will nail your measurements as good as a tailor. We keep all of their measurements online with our system. So assuming they haven't changed shape too much, they can absolutely go online and order themselves. And then for any new clients, we've developed an algorithm with a company out of the U.S. where clients can go on and answer about seven to eight questions about themselves, things that they know, neck size, weight, height, and it'll spit out their measurements to a 2% variance as if they're getting measured in our storefront, all based on our database of about 50,000 clients. It finds the similarly sized individuals and is able to spit out an algorithm accordingly. So I've gained maybe about 10, 12 pounds during this. You have uh, my measurements based on that algorithm. Uh, you're able to make those alterations and then I should be able to go in there, pick up a suit and you may have to make a few other alterations, but wow, that's the future. You nailed it. Well, you know what? It's, a, it's an omni-channel in that regard where you may have measurements on file, but you've felt like you've changed. We offer either the algorithm approach. We also offer the ability to mail the client a tape measure, and they can get a friend or family member to double-check those with our helpful YouTube videos. So you're dead right. It's about meeting clients in the middle there. Alex Ethan's of F Apparel. So we can buy the essentials in person, but with everything else online, for at least the next few weeks, maybe several more weeks after that, delivery or pickup is all part of what we are doing right now. So we asked Michael LeBlanc of the Retail Council of Canada, what will actually change on a permanent basis? We know that e-commerce has accelerated years from where it was pre-pandemic. And while the waterline might recede, it's not going back to where it was pre-pandemic. We know that e-commerce can't replace the volumes of sales uh, when retailers' stores are closed or restricted or on lockdown, as they are in various places and various provinces. And that we know that's going to result in difficult days for many, many retailers, many businesses. Consumer behaviors have changed. We know that they're shopping and doing things that they've never done before. Consumer behaviors are like decaying assets on a balance sheet. What people used to do isn't what they're going to do. We've never had a, a circuit breaker of consumer behavior. LeBlanc says in the months ahead, it's about getting in and out quickly. Expect consumers to continue to destination shop, not browse retail stores for the first part of the year. So we hear that in 2020, we expect it to happen in 2021. In other words, you know, I'm not coming to your store to look around to see what's new. I know what I want. I'm going there. I'm filling in my basket and I'm leaving. So we call that that destination shopping. Now, so where does browsing happen? And we expect and are already seeing lots more on social media, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, you know, whatever, choose your platform. And that there's a lot of pre-shopping done. This was 
true prior to COVID, but now it's it's massive because people just don't want to linger in stores. And in some cases, they can't go into the store. More and more of us will do curbside over those next few months, six months. But later in the year, if the vaccine takes hold in a big way. Pretty big shift from goods to services. I mean, we've been buying in weird and wonderful ways to adjust our lives to the COVID era. Since April, we you know, started off with toilet paper somewhat hilariously you know, continues with buying office desks as we kind of adjust to working at home and get off the kitchen table. So expect that to continue. But in the back half, when I think about uh, the things I'm going to do that I haven't done before, you know, restaurants and travel. In other words, services start to take over goods and we expect that shift to happen. And retailers will need to react to that and are already planning to react to that. You know, if, if you're someone who's been selling um, goods that people need when they travel, it's not been a good year. Uh, but expect that to return. And like our earlier guests, much of this centers around more employees working from home, either full or part-time. LeBlanc, the retail council, expects it will lead to revitalization of local small businesses and the smaller shopping areas. Let's say two-thirds of people go back to the office on any given day. Where What happens to those one-third? So e-commerce, for sure. But it could be the revitalization of local. In other words, I'm going to live and spend and shop where I live. That could see the revitalization of, of local shopping malls, whether they're what we call in the trade B or C malls that, that we're kind of on a bit of a lifeline, like a bit of a threat from e-commerce. They still threatened for sure. But I think they'll have a second lifeline as people, again, look to shop and, and socialize and do what they do closer to home. And, and that's important, that 15-minute city idea. Everything I can get is within 15 minutes. The bigger malls, the bigger malls, like shopping isn't just about a transaction. Shopping is more it's cultural, it's social. I mean, if, trans, you know, if shopping is just about a transaction, it would look like it does today. You know, I just buy on e-commerce and it shows up at my door. You can't beat that for efficiency. But what we're losing, what it lacks, is that impulse, cultural element, the getting together, the, the social part. And we're like, we're social animals. That's not going to change. I'm pretty confident in that, which means shopping malls will continue to have a role. The, the sharp shopping mall owners will continue to drive uh, entertainment, a broader access. They'll do things like probably integrating e-commerce a bit better than they have done in the past, you know, whether it's pick up or drop off. They need to figure that out. Food, beer, liquor, cannabis delivery services will continue to thrive post-pandemic. Larger malls like Polo Park and Portage Place will see more office and housing and services integrated into their footprints. Live, work, place, shop trend is a long, big trend in shopping malls. And that will continue post-COVID. And Alex Ethans of F Apparel looks forward to the day customers can confidently browse again. But the pandemic has resulted in some permanent alterations. We've jumped on a ton of virtual consults with brides and grooms preparing for their big day but unable to leave their homes. And creating a special experience through that online medium and giving them the confidence by mailing them fabrics to their front door, walking them through an online tutorial and providing that education that they might otherwise learn in store, but they can do so now from the comfort of their homes. So it's forced us to expedite our online services and processes, but in a great way. Still ahead, a conversation with an Indigenous leader on how 2021 will be the year of change. And speaking of change, how our relationships have changed. Sadly, some have not survived the pandemic. A family lawyer on the rise of the breakup and addiction. And just ahead, 
when will you actually be able to dress up and go out to that party again, go to the concert or the game, and whether you will need to prove that you've had the vaccine to get in. I'm Richard Kluchek. 2021 better be better than 2020 on 680 CJOB. Most of us miss getting together, family, friends. I miss going to the game, to the concert. I'm an optimistic person by nature. Lynn Scromita is executive director of the Winnipeg Folk Fest. She does believe 2021 will be better than 2020. We have seven different versions of the festival planned uh, at this point that we, that we could possibly execute. Um, everything from a 0% capacity in case we have to do online again to 100% capacity, which is probably the, the least likely of the bunch. And everything in between, you know, 30, 50, 75%, just trying to imagine some kind of festival. I mean, we're lucky in the sense that we're an outdoor event and we know that outdoor uh, events are typically safer than indoor events. And so we're, uh, because we have such a big site at Birdsell Park as well, we're also optimistic that we can do something. But of course, health and safety are the top concerns for us all. And if it can happen, then we're prepared to have that uh, be part of the process as well. So rapid testing is something that we're looking at. We hope that we'll come a little bit further along the way because that might help us in terms of bringing in artists from other places and expanding the audience and that kind of thing as well. It's just really still so early to tell. Things are changing so incredibly quickly. It's such a different situation than it was last year. Jonathan Strauss is in the business of event planning. It's hard to imagine indoor gatherings of more than 50 people much before Canada Day. We'll see larger outdoor gatherings, but um, you know, I'm not uh, expecting to see indoor gatherings beyond dozens um, until this summer, um, just when you look at the pace of the vaccine rollout. But that being said, very hopeful about what happens you know, at Labor Day and post-Labor Day going into the fall um, of seeing groups of um, you know, maybe hundreds indoors, seeing the return of uh, events that require travel starting in September or October. So really hopeful about, uh, you know, what it looks like nine months from now, a little less hopeful about what it looks like over the next, you know, six to nine months. We're counseling our clients, and we have been for the last several months, to wait until September for indoor gatherings of more than 50 people. Um, part of that is also being in control. Um, we don't want to be behind the eight ball and keep being reactionary. So it seems safer to plan for the fall. Um, and, and getting a sense of control. And we're hearing people like Dr. Anthony Fauci and even locally Dr. Rusin talking about you know things six months, nine months from now. So it, it just seems like the safer way to go. And, and I feel badly for people who have weddings planned for the spring or, or postponed from this past year into the spring and summer. I don't know that they're going to get everything they want if they're planning things for, you know, May to August, but uh, they're going to get more than, you know, than we had in the last few months, that's for sure. Anything larger or indoors, Strauss expects it will only be coming this fall at the earliest. Certainly, you know, vulnerable populations look like they'll be vaccinated over the next, you know, three to six months in a big way. Uh, I'm in my 40s, I'll be a little bit later, and that's okay. So I think for me, I'm really excited about having family and friends over for a barbecue in May and June and, you know, more than six or eight people. Um, and I can wait. Uh, we're counseling our clients and we have been for the last several months to wait until September for indoor gatherings of more than 50 people. Um, part of that is also being in control. Um, we don't want to be behind the eight ball and keep being reactionary. So it seems safer to plan for the fall. 
um, and, and getting a sense of control. And we're hearing people like Dr. Anthony Fauci and even locally, Dr. Rusin talking about, you know, things six months, nine months from now. So it, it just seems like the safer way to go. And, and I feel badly for people who have weddings planned for the spring or, or postponed from this past year into the spring and summer. I don't know that they're going to get everything they want if they're planning things for, you know, May to August, but uh, they're going to get more than, you know, than we had in the last few months, that's for sure. And one of the key issues of 2021 of safety, providing proof that you've had the vaccine, immunity passports, a document that tells event planners you have been vaccinated and you are a lower risk. Folk Fest's Lynn Scromita. Well, I know that through uh, our partners uh, that we've been working out, uh, working with uh, in uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, they're in the process of developing some kind of uh, a, a process for that, and that's going to be a requirement for entry into venues that they are partnered with. So I think that kind of technology is going to exist. And I think, again, for the health and safety of all patrons, it will be something that we'll have to look at doing. I, I've been trying to picture going to a Jets game and lining up to walk through the metal detector and now pulling out this passport. Um, and I, I can't imagine it. Um, doesn't mean it won't happen, but I, I find it hard to, to see that happening. And frankly, for, for my small business and for our not-for-profit association clients, I don't know that we want to be in the business of having to find out from people, why are you exempt? Um, why do you feel you, shouldn't, you don't need the vaccine? Uh, you know, as small organizations, we would enter really honestly and safely and educated uh, into those discussions with attendees. I, and, and to some degree, I feel like it may not be a safe discussion. We've seen what's happened in Walmarts in places where people don't want to wear masks. So I don't think it's a role that the private sector should be playing, um, or I shouldn't say should be playing. I don't know how the private sector plays that role. Provincial governments are studying the issue, and immunity passports may not become an issue if enough people are vaccinated to provide mass or herd immunity. But if we don't get there, it could end up being a must-have to go to a mass event in 2021. I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche. Lynn Scromita, are there some permanent changes? For example, streaming. Movie makers will be going to home video earlier sometimes premiering films in theaters and streaming online at the same time or just a few weeks apart. I'm not sure I want to see a concert online once this is done. I'd rather be there in person. But is this a way to supplement the larger shows with smaller online events? I think the right word is supplement. It's something that can help enhance an experience, right? And for somebody who might be able to not make a, a show, have the ability to, to see it somehow, I think there will be a bit more of an expectation, certainly for larger events, that we'll see um, a, a desire for streaming for people who can't be there or who maybe uh, don't want to be there, can't afford to be there or something along those lines, right? There's a lot of different ways that we can incorporate this new knowledge that we have of technology into uh, expanding uh, the audience that gets to participate in the festival. I do think people are tired of sitting in front of screens all the time, but then once you know we kind of get back into real life and get back into normal, uh, existence, when we have these opportunities to pop back online again, I think it actually will enhance the, uh, the live music experience. The next three to five years are going to see uh, in the media and convention industry more regional meetings, more smaller meetings. Um, I think people are going to, it's going to take a while for people to be comfortable to travel to certain places. The longer term change is more online learning, more online events. 
Uh, and there'll definitely be this concept of hybrid events, probably for the rest, you know, for, for a long time, uh, where we'll have some people in the room, some people online. And a lot of money is going to be made by people who figure out how to bring the virtual community together with the in-person community. So that's a change that I think will last, uh, you know, for a very long time. And with air travel, to make it safer following 9-11, we saw the security measures on that side. The health measures, I do believe, will be permanent. And in that way, it does affect uh, your business as far as people who are uh, either commuting or ultimately traveling to another city or another country to go to a convention? For North Americans, we looked uh, a little bit strangely at um, people from, from Asian countries who are wearing masks on flights for a long time now. Um, and I suspect that, um, you know, I'll probably be wearing a mask on a flight for, for many years to come, maybe for the rest of my life. Um, so I think some of those things are, are here to stay. I know that when I look at um, travel plans that I have personally and professionally over the next um, you know, year or two, um, I've been invited to attend a conference next fall in Mexico. It's not high on my list, but I feel more comfortable about consideration for a meeting I've been invited to in Germany next fall. So I think that uh, for me personally, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I'll think about where I travel based on what the local healthcare situation is in a way that I I hadn't really thought as a, as a healthy you know, adult in, in the past. Strauss says that until the economy rebounds, individuals and businesses will be very cautious to spend. Until we really see the economy starting to come back, I think there's going to be a lot of tentativeness in, in people's willingness to spend money. That will really just slow the recovery. So uh, I urge community leaders in every industry and in every profession uh, when it's safe to, to start getting out, start doing things, start using social media to show what's safe to do. Um, there's some great examples that we see from places like Australia where they've gotten it right, where they're they're showing how to safely be together again. And, and we're going to have to do that as a, you know, a local community you know, over the next year. In our next hour, relationships, including the dogs in our life, how medicine will continue to change and go online, education, and how it will incorporate some of the changes of the pandemic permanently and the triumph of science. I'm Richard Cloutier. 2021 better be better than 2020 on 680 CJOB. Hi everyone, it's Michael Redhead Champagne here, North Ender, storyteller, public speaker, and helper. Richard Cluche with you on 680 CJOB, and Michael Redhead Champagne expects 2021 will be better than 2020. The race riots refocused attention on how, how we have a long way to go to resolve generational issues with our Indigenous peoples. We are in the strongest position we have ever been to actually achieve reconciliation in Canada. I think the intention of reconciliation is for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to have a good quality of life, plain and simple, have their basic needs met. Um, and what I'm hoping uh, happens in 2021 is that it'll be the year of Indigenous uh, people, especially Indigenous youth, uh, having opportunities and platforms to be able to speak um, and, and share their stories and ideas about what they need, and non-Indigenous people um, listening as best as they can to those stories and um, together uh, taking actions that are appropriate and respectful and constructive. 
So I feel like 2021 could be the year that we actually do end all boil water advisories in Canada. I think 2021 could be the year that the Canadian government actually stops taking First Nations kids to court, (laughs) a la the First Nations Caring Society and Cindy Blackstock. Um, I think that 2021 could be the year where community safety actually becomes prioritized from an Indigenous perspective um, in places like Winnipeg, where Indigenous people disproportionately are negatively affected by police, police violence. I think this 2021 could be the year we actually succeed in Manitoba at reunifying more children with their families than we remove. So I feel like there's a lot of hope for 2021, but there's a lot of work that is still to be to be done. So what can we do in 2021 to help that process of engagement? Take the time to educate yourselves uh, prior to engaging with Indigenous folks. There are some really helpful documents out there. I'm talking about Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, Inquiry and the calls for justice that accompany it. I'm talking about the Truth of Reconciliation Commission and the cost action that accompany it. These are documents that survivors and Indigenous people who have experienced such pain and loss Um, have poured their heart and souls and stories and ideas into these documents. And I think it is on everybody else who did not participate in those processes to read those documents, to hear those calls to action and for justice, and to specifically say, I'm going to use my privilege and my knowledge and my experience to try to address some of these very simple uh, things. And if people are, you know, a little bit intimidated by those documents, I want to summarize them by saying what people are asking for is safety in their community, their basic needs to be met. That's what those documents spell out. So um, if there's a way for you to help ensure that the folks who live in and around your neighborhood on the territory, on the land that you live on, that they come from, um, if there's a way for you to help uh, bring a little bit of Uh, that justice through your actions by sharing some of your privilege or some of your knowledge or some of your time. Um, That would be so helpful. Michael Redhead Champagne. Winnipeg lawyer Sandra Kleiman is hopeful 2021 will be a better year because in her profession, 2020 saw relationships dissolve but forced many couples to still stay together. You're at home with somebody you're all either on a reduced workload or on a work from home. Everyone's got job insecurity. So at, while you're feeling very sort of confined and perhaps oppressed by the other person, you have this competing problem that you have financial insecurity. And though you don't want to be necessarily locked down with the person that you are living with, you also understand that financially, the stress of separating could be far more intense than under other circumstances. The pandemic brought out the worst in many relationships that ultimately end in separation and divorce. People are frustrated and unhappy um, and angry with what uh, life has thrown their way in 2020. And the person that you take it out on is the person closest to you. So it is a very, very tough situation for spouses to be in because they can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. 
a lot of people are dealing with things that they wouldn't have to deal with if they had the freedom to be elsewhere. So as a lawyer during COVID times, did you find yourself being as much a counselor as a lawyer? Absolutely. Not just with the relationships, but trying to help people navigate with custody arrangements and worrying about health concerns when children go back and forth and trying to allay fears that though there is a pandemic, you still have to normalize it for the kids. Kids are dealing with so many things right now. No school, uh, reduced schooling, no activities, no extracurriculars. They need to know that their parents are still a united front. And even if they're not a united front, that they're not pulling anything and pulling the kids into uh, the drama and making it more stressful for the kids. So there was a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails back and forth to to other lawyers about how are we going to deal with parenting problems and the uncertainty and the fear that their children are going to get sick from going back and forth. Sandra Kleiman concludes, unless the economy rebounds in the months ahead, many couples will have no choice but to stay together simply because of financial reasons. Women, she finds, are often forced to stay in these dysfunctional relationships because they simply can't afford to leave. The pandemic did improve our relationships with our pets. Currently have 16 dogs. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I tend to them and uh, big mixed breed dogs that all cohabitate together along with two potbelly pigs and four cats. Sammy Marr lives north of the city. What is it about dogs and those connections that we make, especially during pandemic times? They're not like us humans where we have ego and anger and, and those kind of emotions. So a dog is just so calming to be with. They're always happy to see you. And, and in a pandemic like this, having an animal to come home to, um, having somebody to sp- spend your time with is, is a wonderful thing. They're non-judgmental, aren't they? Absolutely. You can have the worst day and your dog will still love you. I work with many local rescues and I mean that the work they do in just in this province is is so wonderful. Um, with there being different rescues and now during COVID people adopting these dogs, it helps support the rescues so they can rescue more dogs. People are learning, too, what a benefit dogs are, like families that didn't have a dog but now got a puppy and it can experience the happiness of having a dog. That's a neat experience. Sammy says labs and golden retrievers make the best family pets. And in training, it's really more about dealing with people than the animals. So out of the 16 animals, Sammy, do you have a favorite or a pet that you have a a real connection with? The one dog that I would definitely say my heart dog is a bully breed mix named Bob. He's a brindle pit bull. Anyone who knows me knows Bob because he uh, goes everywhere with me and he's just been a constant support for me for the last 12 years. Uh, I know that dog a lot. So that's, that's Bob the pit bull as we call him. Bob the pit bull. Is it easier yeah. to deal with dogs than humans? Absolutely. That's why I live with 16 of them and no people. <laughs> I'm 680-CJOB's Richard Cluche. 2021 better be better than 2020. Next, expect continued progress in medicine.
2021 better be better than 2020. Best of the season from all of us at Global News Radio, 680 CJOB. I'm Richard Cloutier. One of the big takeaways from the pandemic is the use of our smart devices, our computers, to connect with people we would normally see in person. This is especially true in medicine. The pandemic has forced the doctor-patient relationship online, connecting not just on the telephone, but on the computer. Doctors want to see the patient. And in 2021, we'll continue to see the evolution of virtual visits, the licensing of apps so you can connect with your doctor, not just on the computer on Zoom or other platforms, but be referred to a specialist and ultimately hook yourself up so the doctor can do vital signs. Dr. Navdeep Tangri is a nephrologist researcher at Seven Oaks Hospital in the University of Manitoba. We at the Kidney Health Clinic at Seven Oaks have been doing virtual visits since March of this year. And I think I've made quite a few observations as I do my weekly clinics, uh, um, you know, seeing patients this way. I think the first thing is that I find it easier to connect virtually with my patients who have who I've known for a long time and who I've seen in person before. I think with those people, there's a level of familiarity, there's a level of appreciation that, you know, you're calling them and you're trying to stay in touch despite all the issues with the pandemic, and they appreciate that, and that's worked out really well. Where I've found challenges has been with people who I've never seen before or who I'm meeting for the first time. And when that first meeting is virtual, I don't think you you quite make that same connection. And I think it's even more diminished um, when that first connection is on the telephone rather than versus, rather than a video chat uh, or one of those features. So, you know, I, I think if I was to think about how we would do this in 2021 and 2022, I'd love to still see people in person or video. I think the phone has to be third after in person on video. And we've got to try and see people face to face, look each other in the eyes and, and talk about these sensitive matters, uh, you know, until we establish that patient physician relationship. And once, you know, once that's feels like that's well established, then some of the visits can be done virtually. But I still think there's a place for for that face-to-face interaction. Can you take my vital signs over the internet? Yeah. So I think that's one thing that we'd really like to be able to do more. And I think the key is, uh, you know, in kidney disease and heart disease and, and probably in many other chronic diseases, it's uh, it's it's blood pressure and weight. And I and, uh, you know, I'd have to say that we have really good scales and really good blood pressure monitors, um, ones that are, uh, you know, accurate, uh, that are available now at, you know, at almost every store. And um, quite a lot of them are now Bluetooth enabled. So I think we have to do better about importing that data in 2021 and 2022 again. Um, but, I, you know, It'd be really great if more of our patients had blood pressure monitors and, and scales and we're doing some of that stuff from home. I think that would make our life easier. One of the challenges in isolated and rural communities is access to the Internet. Tangri says, yes, there are hurdles to overcome. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. I think in some of the very remote communities, it'll, it'll be extremely important that the nursing stations or the local primary care facilities have a very strong internet connection and an ability to video chat. I think even within the city, we've noticed that when um, when connectivity is good, 
there's still a, a not widespread adoption in older uh, adults of platforms like Microsoft Teams or Zoom or 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 any of these video conferencing platforms, which thankfully, you know, the Shared Health Manitoba, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority has, has enabled us to use. So, uh, you know, I think I would ask some of the people who are listening today to, to think about downloading Zoom or Teams and and you know use it to chat with your family, use it to chat with uh, use it to chat with your doctor because oh, in my experience, what I've found is that it is more meaningful to be able to see each other uh, than to simply talk on the phone. And uh, hopefully the patients will find it more helpful as well. So not only is there a connectivity gap, there's also a kind of a app familiarity gap, I think. It's amazing what our smartphones can do. Dr. Navdeep Tangri from Seven Oaks Hospital in the University of Manitoba with us on 680 CJOB. Let's talk about e-consult. This is technology in its simplest form, you can take a picture of a skin condition to do a consult either on the other side of the city, country, or the world, or maybe send a file. But are there still issues to overcome with the technology? It is seeing more use. I'm one of the doctors that e-consults on it, and lots of dermatologists on there as well. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, it's still not ultra-user-friendly. You know, I'd love to be, have our family doctors, um, you know, basically with one click, send a file or send an image with a question. You know, I think that's how easy we have to make it. We have to make it uh, that, you know, the family physicians who are quite busy can, can send something with one click, uploading one document, and then the specialists can pr- answer that question with one click and one document, you know. Uh, that's, I think that's the place we need to get to. And then that will take away the need for a lot of, you know, the simple visits, which sometimes clog up wait times. Hopefully we can take some of the lessons from this pandemic and get to a more efficient system going forward. What's the potential here? What are the possibilities in the years to come? Some of the more, you know, optimistic and beautiful possibilities that I see is that patients who live outside of the city, in my view, should maybe only come to see their specialist or their doctor in person once a year, perhaps, and then all their other visits can be done virtually over video chat. I think that that's tremendous because a lot of my patients, you know, in, who live outside of Winnipeg sometimes travel two, three hours, 200, 300 kilometers, winter weather and roads are tough, especially, you know, rural highways we know uh, can be risky. You know, I, I hate that these people who are often in their 60s, 70s and 80s have to do this. So I, I'd love to just be able to see them once a year in person in the clinic and the rest of the time, if they can give me a blood pressure and a, and a weight and we can do a video visit not a problem at all. For many specialties, this can be a real reality. And I think this can, and and this way, the other beautiful thing about this is that now somebody who's living outside of the city is getting the same level of care as somebody living inside the city. And, And it's really important to me. I think we're really all very passionate that all citizens of our province should get the same level of care, regardless of where they live. The pandemic has really thrust a lot of this technology and advancement upon us we're talking on a technology today that uh, Global News and 680 CJOB has advanced. It has its hiccups from time to time, but generally does work for us rather well. Are there any other impediments in getting this done? Um, because sometimes regulations are there um, to kind of put 
some roadblocks in its place. Have we been able to remove a lot of those roadblocks because of the pandemic? I think so. I think it has accelerated some of the removal of the roadblocks related to video chatting and video conferencing and virtual visits. And that's a lot has to uh, has to be credit for a lot of has to be given to doctors Manitoba who've really who've really pushed uh, uh, you know pushed this forward for on the doctor's behalf and on the province who's cooperative with Dr. Manitoba doctors Manitoba to enable patients to get good virtual care. So, so I think now that some of the roadblocks are removed, we should we should you know take advantage of the positive changes um, that they've introduced and and make sure that that those who can do just as well with the virtual visit, particularly those who live out of town or those who are older adults, you know, get that opportunity going forward. That this should not end once the pandemic ends. Hopefully, it ends soon. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Navdeep Tangri, nephrologist researcher, Seven Oaks Hospital, University of Manitoba. Now, with the vaccine distribution moving from hundreds to thousands of Manitobans each day early in 2021, the pandemic has proved that science can triumph. In our next half hour, we look at science and the University of Manitoba's contribution to vaccine development, a conversation with the new president of the U of M, on what some of the changes made in 2020 will likely become permanent. I'm Richard Cloutier. 2021 better be better than 2020 on 680 CJOB. I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier. It took a pandemic to focus leaders in politics, business, health and research to find vaccines in record time. The coming together of all the different groups around the planet, not only coronavirus researchers who have been studying coronaviruses, you know, for most of their careers, but also all of the other scientists who came on board, who dropped what they were doing to refocus their efforts onto the coronavirus and the development of a vaccine is extraordinary. Professor Brian Mark is a microbiologist at the University of Manitoba. He's also the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science. He joins us now on 2021 Better Be Better than 2020. My lab has been studying coronaviruses for about a decade. We work closely with a group of virologists at uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands, and we also work with uh, scientists at the University of Toronto. Um, we previously were studying MERS coronavirus quite closely, and we developed ways to block uh, replication of that particular coronavirus um, in cells. And so the University of Manitoba, in, a, in addition to myself, there's a number of other um, virologists who are all contributing towards not only basic science discoveries like myself, but also uh, clinical practice, participating in clinical trials. Uh, the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, which is, has a lot of close affiliations with the university, has also been strategic in our ability to detect, diagnose, trace the uh, spread of the virus in the country. So Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba has played a, you know, a significant role in all of this. In Canada. Can we also credit that early identification of uh, the COVID pattern, the genome, if you will, and, and that kind of data shared worldwide was really able to unleash science at its best? Oh, absolutely. When um, the group in China published the genome sequence of the coronavirus, there were already a number of research groups around the world who were perfectly poised to take that information and start developing vaccine strategies. So a number of the vaccine strategies that have made it across the finish line so far, firstly, the uh, BioNTech Pfizer 
uh, vaccine and shortly the Moderna vaccine. Also the vaccine that's being developed by Oxford and AstraZeneca. There's another being developed by Johnson & Johnson and there's a number of others that are still in the pipeline. Uh, those were all made possible by information that was made available by the, that, that Chinese group when they published the genome sequence. Because the platforms that are being used to develop some of these vaccines, or most of them, it's just a matter of then swapping in that genetic information into their platform, which then allowed them to take off quite quickly. So a lot of the technologies that are being used to develop these vaccines have been studied for many years already, and they're well understood. It was just a matter of switching over the genetic information to target it towards the coronavirus that is currently causing a problem. So does this then enable uh, scientists around the world uh, to be able to identify the next one? Because everything I read is that this is one of many to come, and that A, we have to really do a better job at our surveillance networks, and then B, based on the data we already have, we should be able to address this rather quickly. Yeah, so surveillance is always an issue, right? I mean, it costs a lot of money. It, co- it, it takes a lot of uh, person power to sort of, to maintain a, a vigilance when it comes to monitoring the outbreaks of new diseases, emerging viruses in this case. Um, so yes, there are hundreds of coronaviruses, right? People have known about coronaviruses for quite some time. There's there are seven now seven known human coronaviruses, four of which have been circulating through the human population for many years already. They cause common cold-like symptoms. The remaining, though, the ones that have emerged in the last 20 years includes, of course, the first SARS virus back in 2003, then the MERS coronavirus, and now we have uh, SARS-CoV-2. So these, the last three viruses that have emerged have been more um, infectious, um, more lethal than the previous coronaviruses that have come out. Identifying their emergence quickly allows for containment. That is more of a public health measure at that, you know, immediate point in time as opposed to the scientists coming on board. But I think one of the really promising things that can couple on to that effort of surveillance is the um, the rapid way in which you can actually now edit these RNA vaccines to uh, quickly target them towards new and emerging viruses. So the effort that's gone into these RNA viruses, uh, virus um, or vaccines is particularly exciting because of the simplicity actually of the RNA vaccine design and how quickly it could potentially be modified to not only uh, target new and emerging viruses but to also target variants of the current coronavirus that may emerge over time. Because respiratory viruses like coronaviruses, uh, influenza virus, common cold viruses, they, they are quite prone to changing over time. Um, and so having vaccines that can be edited to keep up with that change will be very useful. Microbiologist Brian Mark from the University of Manitoba is with us on 680 CJOB. He's also the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science. So what's ahead based on what we've learned from the pandemic, not just in dealing with viruses, but other uses beyond COVID-19? I think the biggest advancement that will come out of that is the use of RNA-based vaccines for future uh, vaccinology. So up until this point, um, RNA-based vaccines had been studied for many years. They're well understood, um, but they had never been used um, to vaccinate a large you know, human population. So, um, but their efficacy is has been astounding. And the other interesting thing about that is that you have two independent companies, right, that have developed 
an RNA-based vaccine. You've got Pfizer and, and BioNTech, and you've got Moderna, which is the other big pharma that's been developing their RNA vaccine. And they have both arrived at very similar clinical outcomes. The phase three clinical trials from both companies are, you know, they both have 95% efficacy. So you have sort of a two independent uh, experiments going on to have arrived at the same result, which is very encouraging. And um, the simplicity of the approach just will allow for rapid, more rapid vaccine development in the future. So I think that is a really major outcome that goes far beyond just um, the current coronavirus pandemic. And Mark says there are other modern medical advancements that were overshadowed by the pandemic. The Nobel Prize to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel um, Chapetanier was for the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing technology. So this technology actually, they first published it back in 2012, uh, but only this year were they awarded the Nobel Prize for it, and many people, of course, were expecting that. I think in particular, though, this year, there was the actually published on December 5th, so this month, in the New England Journal of Medicine, was the first clinical trial that was used uh, based on this genome editing technology to treat two classic uh, blood disorder, uh, one of which was uh, sickle cell anemia. And um, so the ability to edit the genome to correct genetic disease using CRISPR-Cas9, I think, is a remarkable uh, advancement in, in modern medicine. And its application is just broad. I mean, it's being used everywhere nowadays. So that's that, I think, was one particularly important advancement um, and recognition that took place this year. I think the other two that I have um, in mind are the development of artificial intelligence technologies. In particular, uh, related to my field is the protein folding problem, which uh, has been... Um, well, solved to a great extent by DeepMind, which is a uh, Google development, artificial development uh, group. And protein folding is a problem where, so in your genome, you've got genes. Each gene is an instruction set that codes for a protein. So a protein is a little, you know, machine-like entity that is, would, exists within your cells and it carries out some task, uh, some task in your biochemistry that keeps you alive. Um, now, when it's first made, it's a linear sequence, it's, and then it folds up into a three-dimensional structure, and that structure dictates what it does. And how you go from a linear string up to a folded structure has been a, has been a um, problem in biology that people have been trying to figure out for decades and decades. And this year, uh, this DeepMind group really made a, astounding advancements in being able to predict how proteins fold up to become functional. So that's really uh, an amazing advancement. Professor Brian Mark, microbiologist from the University of Manitoba, he believes 2021 will see more advancements, and only if we could harness the energy and money used to solve the pandemic on so many other problems. I'm Richard Kluche. Coming up on 680 CJOB, a conversation with the president of the University of Manitoba on the changes made in post-secondary education during the pandemic and the ones that could stick in the months and years to come. COVID has changed education. And while experts agree in-person is a must, especially for younger children, post-secondary education has made the transition. 
Richard Cluche with you on 680 CJOB. And like the workplace of the post-pandemic world that'll allow more of us to work from home, the new president of the University of Manitoba expects some permanent changes as a result of the pandemic. There are things that we can do virtually, but there are things that have to happen in person, and, and students are missing that. And it's that ability to connect with people um, in person for them, and, and that's a big part of their experience. Repeat after me. Michael Benarash took over as the University of Manitoba president last July, returning to Winnipeg after a stint at Ryerson University in Toronto. There are certain kinds of classes that maybe will stay uh, virtual, although I think we have to do a, you know, we still have work to do to make those courses in a virtual environment really, really engaging. Uh, and, And I think those are the classes where you know, for the most part, they're a transfer of information going in one direction. They're not classes that have a lot of interaction generally. I think that that we can find ways to keep those classes virtual to provide students with flexibility. But one of the things we have learned is that not all students do well in that environment. There's been students, you know, while our enrollments went up, Our first-year enrollments went down a bit uh, because I think there are students out there waiting for the in-person experience, so it's not a complete replication. I think that what the other thing we're learning is what what we're going to do from this when we we come out. I think we're going to be more of a hybrid university, and the kinds of things we're going to want to do on campus are going to be very engaging with students. And so we may need to do uh, a significant... um, alteration of actually our physical space, which in many classrooms is designed as fixed seating. So you come in, you sit in a desk, you can't really move that desk, and you you participate in a lecture. And I think what one of the things that's going to happen is, um, you know, to draw students to campus, we're going to make sure that we're going to have to make sure that campuses are very engaging. That's going to take a period of time. And I think that that always leads to a change in the kind of space that we need. And this is a change that was already happening as faculty were engaging students in group projects, in class, in research-based projects, in experiential learning and work-integrated learning. All of this is being, you know, has been evolving within universities. And I think one of the things that COVID has done is accelerate the pace at which some of those changes are going to take place. At, at this point, I'm still not convinced we're going to need less classes. We might need less 500 or 300 room uh, classrooms, but I'm not convinced that um, we won't come back to a very vibrant campus. We may just be doing uh, different things on campus or doing them in a slightly different way or in some cases a very different way than we were uh, pre-COVID. 2021 better be better than 2020. I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche with University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh. Now, given the fact that more students are online and they can get their education anywhere online, does this make post-secondary education from where you sit even more competitive? I, I absolutely think so. And I think that this is this is going to be a big change here in Manitoba. Um, You know, what's interesting about that, I mean, I just came from Ontario, and there's a lot of competition inside of Ontario, just across those universities. And and you watch how competition really drives change. In fact, I think that's already happening, um, where students can begin to look elsewhere for 
um, the courses that they want to take. And, and the question then will be, why Manitoba? Why do it here? And we're going to have to make sure that our brand is strong enough that, that not only do Manitobans want to continue to attend the University of Manitoba, but our international students and students across Canada um, want to attend the University of Manitoba. I think there's many things that we offer that are very unique, uh, and, and we want to build on those, and we want to continue to build on our strengths uh, as a university for Manitobans and for the community. One of the th interesting things that's happening right now is our international students are actually wanting to come to Winnipeg. So this last month, we had about 60 international students that came back to Manitoba. We've worked, we've developed a plan that was approved by the province and the federal government to quarantine the students for two weeks in a local hotel. So we're providing support to our local industry. We have a plan where we share the cost with students. We have nursing students who check in with the students uh, on a daily basis to make sure that they're fo following COVID protocol. All the students have a place to live at the end of the two weeks. And we're receiving more and more calls from our international students talking about how they can come here next term. So I think we have a really strong brand and we have to continue to build on that to continue to try to improve. I think this is part of the sustainability of our university. We have to remain competitive. We have to try to attract and retain the best faculty that we can. Uh, and and we're, you know, our competition now is going to be much more global. And we have to make sure that we set ourselves up as a university and as a province to compete globally. You've seen this when you were head of the Asper faculty that uh, we would get some of the best and brightest for a few years. And then they would leave for another institution. And we just didn't have the wherewithal, the resources to be able to compete for that. What I'm hearing from you, Michael Benarash, is that we're going to be there. We're going to be part of that process to retain the best and the brightest. And that's how you grow a university. Absolutely. We have work to do to get there. But um, if we don't, we do it at our peril as a province. Um, and I, I, think it's, I think it is important for us, um, for all the post-secondary institutions. Um, and, and um, you know, we have a very strong post-secondary sector. I think we punch well above our weight uh, as a sector here in the province. And I, I believe we, we can be part of the um, of growth and renewal of, of our province as we come out of COVID, which will be challenging. And uh, universities and post-secondaries have to be in, in, in a place where we're able to do that. I, you know, I, I still do worry a little bit about um, uh, how we can, we can compete um, uh, globally, but uh, I, I think that what we want to try to do is put in, put in place those pieces that will put us in that position. And by the way, it's not just universities. I, I said this when I was dean of the Asper School. I wanted, I wanted business students graduating and pushing Manitoba businesses to think globally. I think it's, it's thinking globally as an entire province. And um, you know what we've seen through COVID, and if you think about why COVID research around a vaccine moves so quickly, it's because we marshaled global resources. Researchers work together across the globe, breaking down the barriers in real time, not competing against each other, but working together to overcome COVID and a vaccine is developed in record time. I think if we take that as a model of how we're going to work 
in the future, we have tremendous opportunities for growth here in this province. Where do you see lifelong education headed in the months and years to come? Where we can play a much bigger role than we've played in the past is in re-education and upskilling of people. This is not people coming back for a four-year degree or a master's or a PhD, but in figuring out what kind of sets of skills um, universities or colleges may be able to uh, provide uh, for people that are more short-term in nature. I, you know, I don't know if it's four months, six months, one-year programs that help people uh, to, to transfer some of the skills they have now to areas that will be growing in the future. Certainly what we've seen of, about this is technology and um, you know, e-commerce is, is, is going to be much bigger as we move out of this. And so we know that there's going to be jobs and they're, they're even growing now in the area of e-commerce. Um, but I think research and development and entrepreneurship is going to be even larger. So this is again somewhere, you know, really interested here at the U of M of developing um, greater entrepreneurial skills within our students. One of the ideas that I brought from Ontario that we'd like to do here is to start our own um, startup zone where our students start their own businesses while they're undergraduate students and then bringing you know, people with the expertise in the area, if it's fintech, if it's, um, you know, whatever it might be in Manitoba, people have started businesses in those areas, if it's food services, if it's agriculture, if it's engineering, bring, you know, experienced people to help mentor our students and, and begin to drive that entrepreneurial spirit with graduates from our province, because I think that's what will drive uh, also future growth. University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh, the best of the new year. No politicians were interviewed for this program. I'm Richard Cloutier. 2021 better be better than 2020 on 680 CJOB. The News on CJOB with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham.